speak to us this morning here. We're continuing a sermon series uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. And so our passage this morning is going to be from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text that's printed in your worship folder. And I've entitled again this, this series going through the Sermon on the Mount as Being Whole Disciples. Uh, whole being kind of a, a double meaning, being whole disciples in that we are disciples of a whole kingdom, a kingdom of wholeness, of restoration, of what God is doing in the world. But also we are disciples who are to follow him with our whole selves, with our whole person. And that's very much what the Sermon on the Mount is concerned about then. Jesus is telling us the whole person demands of being a disciple of his kingdom of wholeness. Before we read our passage today, uh, let's come to the Lord and let's pray. God, please speak to us this morning. Uh, challenge us with your word. Challenge us with what uh, its contents are and what you are calling us to be. But Lord, may, may we not also forget who you are for us in Jesus and who Jesus is in this, in this passage. He is not only the one who is calling us to a kingdom with high demands, but we also are reminded that he is calling us into a kingdom of graciousness. Form us then into being these whole person disciples for the sake of Jesus. Amen. This is Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. This is the word of God. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. For centuries throughout history, the church has sought to understand and to live out its proper relationship with the world in which it lives. It has bounced back and forth and it's found itself in various places along this continuum. And each side of the continuum are two ideals. We could call one asceticism and the other assimilation. Asceticism on one side, or this idea of pulling ourselves away from the common concerns of life. It's what drove the monasteries and it drove monks, keeping oneself unstained and unsoiled by the sinful world around us. It led people to sit up on poles for weeks. But maybe on to less extreme examples, there have been moments in history, though, where segments of the church have concerned itself only with personal religion and private devotion. And not that personal devotion and a personal relationship with God isn't important. But going so far as to making the gospel merely a private affair without many implications on how we interact in the world around us. And a common way that we see this asceticism continuing to tug at us today is by taking a bunker mentality of escapism from the world around us. Let's just leave it all And let's cloister ourselves away and create some comfortable surroundings for ourselves. So we have asceticism on one side, 
But on the other hand, we have assimilation. Assimilation, the idea of absorbing ourselves into the culture or integrating ourselves with common society to the point even of compromising its integrity. Well, when religion and Christianity become merely cultural without taking the demands of God very seriously, or accommodation and compromise with our beliefs, trying to make Christianity appeal to the culture so much that over time it ends up rather being quite indistinct than, than from the common secular belief that's around us. So we have two polar opposites at the end of the spectrum. One which holds itself away in obscurity. And then the other then which fades, itself, which fades into oblivion and is swallowed up by the culture. Yet the fears of both aren't unfounded. Right? By separating, we lessen the risk of being compromised. But by separating, then we lessen the gospel's relevancy in the world. And this becomes a struggle for many of us here in this congregation. These aren't theoretical questions, but they become quite personal to many of us here. How do I live faithfully as a disciple in California? How do I exist as a faithful follower of Jesus in Sonoma County? What does discipleship look like as I feel an increasing divide in society? Is faithfulness to the gospel pulling myself and my family away from it all? Is it through integrating myself with it? But when Jesus, though, calls us to get up and follow him after his disciples, it means we follow him with our whole selves. And the kingdom that he calls us into, the path that we now walk and that we will enter into someday is a kingdom of wholeness. There are demands that Jesus has of us. There are very real demands that are costly. And yet it's worth it. Because the kingdom that he calls us into pulses with the very power of God to, tra to transform real people, individuals and communities. To transform them from brokenness into wholeness. And amid these difficult questions and this cultural confusion, what makes, though, this life in Christ is one of deep privilege. Even with its demands that it has, it's a privilege that Jesus as Savior would call us to bear witness to the salvation that's found in this kingdom. Even as we ourselves then become examples of its personal transformation. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow him in this kingdom-centered life. And since the kingdom is presently here and active in the world, that it transforms us and it doesn't give ground. So is discipleship escape or is it integration? We see from our passage that it's neither. Discipleship is Jesus' call to follow him with a public witness and with a distinct identity. It refuses to relegate self itself to the sidelines. It is public. But it also, though, refuses to bow to the demands of the culture. It is distinct. And Jesus uses two ideas to get across this relationship between the disciple, the kingdom, and the surrounding world. He uses the metaphors of salt and light, both of which would have been very familiar to these people, and to a degree, us. Now, salt in the ancient world was like one of the everyday commodities that you just had to have. It was almost like electricity or running water. You don't have salt. Who even are you? <laughs> one important quality of salt for these people was, 
for us to understand this passage. And first of all, it imparts taste. We all get that. Salt is tasty. How often do you reach for salt at the dinner table or use it in your cooking? It's one of the most vital seasonings that you can use. I don't know if I've ever followed a recipe that doesn't have salt in it. It imparts flavor and taste. In other words, salt stands out. When food is bland, add a little bit of salt to add some distinctness. And so as, as disciples, as salt of the earth, we stand out. Jesus has called us to bear a distinctness from the world around us. We ought to be salty people in the best possible way, to be flavorful and distinct, to stand out in certain ways in our culture. Now, salt as seasoning is obviously very important. We can all appreciate that. But salt to the ancient world had an even more important role, and that was being used as a preservative to prevent certain foods, especially meat, from spoiling and from decay in a warm Mediterranean climate. You would rub it, you'd rub, rub the food or cover it with salt. And Jesus conveys that his disciples then are to bear a similar sort of preservative role. Many times people have taken that to be a call to press for public moral reforms and to prevent societal decay with these moralistic undertones. But there's something much deeper here than that. It's bearing witness to a dying world, to the kingdom of God, where true life happens. Salt is to be a display of the flourishing kingdom amid a rotting and decaying world. Salt, then, with its multifaceted and its incredibly useful qualities, was vital to ancient society. So when Jesus tells the disciples, you are the salt of the earth, he's getting across that they are vital to the witness of the kingdom. Just as salt was an essential element of life, so are disciples essential to the public witness of the kingdom as it is right now. If people are to know the beautiful, the life-imparting, the well-seasoned and distinct characteristics of the kingdom of God, then they ought not to look any further than his disciples as being members of that kingdom. Jesus also uses the metaphor of light. If salt is something that we understand in some ways, well, light is something, it's a universal for all of us. Because light dispels darkness. Darkness scatters when the light shines. It removes the shroud which covers our vision. It allows us to see clearly. And that's not even to mention all the associations that we have with darkness. Very few scary stories begin, it was a bright and sunny noontime in the meadow. Darkness hides. Darkness conceals whatever evils might be lurking. But light, though, brings comfort amid the darkness. Light chases away our fears. And disciples, as this light, bear witness to the kingdom of light and life, which chases away the darkness. It is the opposite of dark, and it doesn't mix. Light overcomes darkness, and Jesus sends his disciples into the world then to be the very light of his kingdom to those who are living in the shadows. But we also see that light illumines the way. Light allows us to see in the correct way even when the darkness presses in. Being a disciple is to be an illumining light to those whose vision is obscured by the shadows and people who can't find their way.
And then Jesus applies this directly to his disciples. He says directly, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. In other words, an essential part of being a disciple is being this salt and light. He states right here that it's a non-negotiable. Not be salt and light. But no, you are salt and light. So from that, what do we learn? What are the takeaways here? Well, first, discipleship involves public witness. Discipleship involves public witness. Salt is a preservative. It has qualities which keep rot and keep decay at bay. And so when Jesus refers to his disciples as salt, it means that the ordinary calling of all of his followers is to impart this life-preserving characteristic to a world then that is decaying. But that's accomplished by bearing witness to the kingdom to which we belong. A kingdom of wholeness. A kingdom that restores brokenness and imparts restoration. Those traits are part and parcel with the calling that we're given. We are called then into this kingdom and we experience it with one another. And we bear witness then to the world that is swiftly rotting away that there's a better way. And if we understand just how deep the rot goes, that it goes beyond the surface values, it goes beyond the the morals of the culture, but it is embedded in the very fabric of society around us, that it is the sin that lies within this world, then it's only something as radical and world upturning as the kingdom of God to really do any good. Yet this preservative quality of Jesus' disciples assumes that we will be living publicly in our witness to the kingdom in this world. And this public witness of the kingdom, though, is also seen by being light. Light in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, is associated with God's salvation. John 8, Jesus says that he is the light of the world and that he came to give the light of life to men and women who are dwelling in their darkness and their despair. And it's the church then who bears witness to this light. And light, by its nature of what it does to the darkness, light is public. Light cannot be hidden. Just to actually, right before this, we're in Matthew 5, in Matthew 4, towards the end there, Jesus first proclaims that the kingdom of God has come into this world. And as it says that, it quotes from Isaiah 42, which says that the peoples who dwelled in a deep darkness have seen a great light. That those dwelling in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And it's understood that this light is Jesus. He is a servant of the Lord who has himself brought illumination to the peoples to show them the way to life. And that he himself then is that very light. Yet it's interesting that only a few verses later where we are here in Matthew 5, Jesus would tell his disciples, you are the light of the world. What he's doing here is he is extending his mission of salvation. The reason he came, he's bearing his witness here to his church to go forth and be witnesses on his behalf. They are to continue on the earth while he's away to be the witness of the kingdom to the world which is in desperate need of light. Discipleship isn't just a call that he places upon us to enter into his kingdom. We aren't just merely passive recipients by his grace. But those who he graciously calls into his kingdom, reconciles by his cross and makes righteous by his blood, he then commissions them as his witnesses to go forth 
as of, um, in the very world to bear witness to his kingdom. The very ways that you experience the grace and mercy of Jesus the king in his kingdom, the forgiveness, the restoration, the unity and life and joy, the things that are making you whole, those are the very things that the world needs. And yet your experience of those things isn't to be a private affair. It's something, though, that's to be very public. It's to be visible to a world that craves it and that needs it, whether they realize it or not. See, the light that shines out from you isn't your own light. What shines from you is the light of Christ. That's what makes you the light in the world. We are filled with the light of Jesus and his kingdom. It's the power and light of Christ, that which is his, which shines through us. And the true light of Christ, which shines through you, cannot be hidden. Nor is it even supposed to be hidden. Because for both salt and light, what's their purpose? It's to stand out. Salt stands out by adding flavor. Light stands out by illumining in the darkness. There's an assumption that a disciple will live then in a way which stands out. That the life of discipleship is not merely an inward affair, but it entails the whole person both inside and out. And that means how they live publicly before others. There is a distinct public character and aspect to our witness. Even in verse 16, the end there, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. There is a witness which is manifested by good works in the world. Inner faith and piety is important, but we can't separate that from a robust inner, but we can't separate that from an outward witness. A robust inner faith, which takes seriously the call to Jesus, will then lead to a robust outer faith that is seen through good works. A person called into the kingdom will then live transformed by the kingdom and will bear fruit of the kingdom before others. Fruit that demonstrates the beauty and the power of the kingdom of God. It's righteousness. It's holiness. It's goodness. So that when others see those fruits, then they will gain glimpses of the kingdom and of the God who reigns over it. See, the purpose of our witness before others is distinctly kingdom-oriented. It's for the glory of the Father, as it says in verse 16. And that glory is when others are brought into the kingdom and they call him as father also. To be able to call God as father means that that person has has that sort of intimate relationship with him. So for people to glorify God as father means that they are also brought into that same relationship as sons and daughters of the kingdom which the disciples bear witness to. Discipleship isn't merely a call to the kingdom. It's a call, but it's also a commission than to go and spread the kingdom. And its witness then is by, the, by our works, by the public righteousness there that we have, and it has a distinct kingdom-oriented flavor. Being salt and light isn't about social transformation. It's not about engaging in a public betterment plan. By God's common grace, he uses both believers and non-believers to uphold the world and sustain a level of civil good in, the society, in society. But it's also more than just being simply a kind person. There are lots of kind people who don't love Jesus. But for disciples, there's something distinct. 
It's about outsiders from God seeing the vision of his kingdom and giving glory to him as they are brought in. And most often, this public righteousness turns out to be quite ordinary. It's a very extraordinary task that we're given. It's an extraordinary vision of the kingdom of God here. People get to see glimpses of the kingdom among us, but it's actually quite ordinary generally in how it manifests itself. Because it almost sounds like, though, to be real salt and light witnesses to a dying world, that we need to do something radical. And we spend so much time trying to look for the extraordinary acts of discipleship, or sometimes wondering if we even have the guts to carry them out, that we miss the everyday witnesses and acts of righteousness that come with faithfully serving in our ordinary spheres. Perhaps sustainable is actually preferable to radical. Being salt and light is seen in the ordinariness of our lives, in being faithful husbands and fathers, mothers and wives, in raising your family faithfully in the Lord, training them up in the next generation to be the next worshipers by the values of the kingdom that are manifest in in our everyday relationships by continuing to uphold worship and living faithfully before God in trust and reliance and repentance? Have we ever considered that this, perhaps, is true relevancy? The world is quickly changing, and the trajectories continue to be accelerating at staggering rates. But whether society collapses or or emerges into some sort of new golden age, it really doesn't matter. Because the discipleship call of being salt and light remains the same. And whatever happens in the world doesn't change the call to ordinary faithfulness that we're given. Bearing witness to a kingdom that will never fall. So discipleship has a public character to it, a public witness. But discipleship, our second point here, maintains a distinct identity. Has a distinct identity to it. Both salt and light stand out from the environment to which they're added. Salt by its flavor, light by its illumining. There's a fundamental difference between what they are and what they contrast with. And without that distinction, they're useless. And Jesus is getting across this point. There is an essential difference between the church and the world that gets to its very heart. It's not a difference that can be defined by any external way that we tend to to group or divide people. It's not primarily a difference in how we think or in how we live, though both of those are affected by this difference. It's a difference of identity, of who you are at your very core. And the Bible tells us that there are really only two identities. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. Now, no one is autonomous. Everyone relates to God and the world through one or the other. Either in the old way in Adam and all the tragic consequences that he brought upon this world and that we have only continued as people. Or in Christ and all the righteousness and the life that springs from him by his reversal of that trajectory into flourishing. Or to think of it in terms of kingdoms, you're either in a kingdom that is passing and decaying like the old one Or you're a member of the kingdom of heaven coming, which is coming into the world to restore all things. 
When Jesus issues then the call to discipleship, he's calling us to live the reality of being united by, uh, by faith to Christ. You cannot be a disciple apart from that vital union. If discipleship comes down to identity, then identity is foundational. To be distinct from the world comes down to, ma- to having an identity in Christ. And so that any and all righteousness and holiness in life freely flows from him. And Jesus himself is what sets a person apart. And to attempt to set yourself apart from the world then without Jesus will result in self-righteousness, which will tarnish our very witnesses. But this distinction, though, brings certain burdens into our lives that wouldn't be there otherwise. Have you ever grown tired of being distinct? or of standing out in the world, especially when it tends to bring difficulty. Sometimes we just want to live a normal life, don't we? But if we consider discipleship, though, in terms of identity, then whoever said that life in Adam was normal? Because according to God's word, there's nothing normal about this way of life, the world that we currently know it. Being in Adam and living in a world that's wrecked by the consequences of Adam's fall actually brings what wasn't intended or designed into our lives. The original intent of how life was to be experienced, goodness, peace, unity, and fellowship, this was ruined and sullied. But what if the kingdom of God is a restoration from abnormality back into its original intent? That what God offers in Jesus, what, who he's remaking us and the world in Christ, what if that's actually making us normal again in terms of intent? If we think of it in these terms, then our identity is one of wholeness, of being restored. And that makes our identity and our distinction one of unimaginable privilege. Therefore, our identity helps us to foster our witness. What makes us distinct becomes the means of attraction. The life and the reconciliation and the restoration in Jesus that forms us becomes the very seasoning then that attracts others into the kingdom. That doesn't mean that everyone will find it attractive. That doesn't mean that it won't bring discord into our lives. Because people don't like what they don't understand. And following Jesus in this life of witness then means inviting a level of derision. Yet even though people might scorn us for who we are, they ought to look with curiosity at how we live. Because we make alive the values of the kingdom of God to those who feel the burdens of life that Jesus alone uniquely takes away. We display an identity grounded in rest and in Sabbath to a culture that is enslaved to endless work. We show what abiding peace can look like amid the storms of life to a world that is strangled by anxiety. We bear witness to unique and beautiful community with God and with one another, to a system of isolated individuals who are cut off from one another. We demonstrate what lives of sacrifice look like to the power-obsessed, faithfulness to a world that denigrates commitment and fidelity in favor of personal pleasure. We bear witness to the value of life to a society of death. We have the wonderful and awe-inspiring privilege of getting to display these values of the kingdom to a dying world. 
It needs to see our distinctness if it is to see the hope that Jesus gives in his kingdom. And so discipleship then is Jesus' personal commitment to be useful to his kingdom. It's not only a call to be brought into his kingdom and to follow after him, but it's also a commission as he sends us out into the world. Or rather, he keeps us in this world rather than removing us, but he gives us the task of bearing witness. And this is the intent and the purpose of discipleship. His disciples are to be salt and light. This public witness role and distinct identity is part of what it means to follow after Jesus. Salt that loses its saltiness is good for nothing. A lamp that's lit and then hid away in the corner under a basket is good for nothing. It defies its very purpose. And if Jesus calls you to be a disciple, he gives you a specific purpose, which is also a privileged purpose to continue his mission of bearing witness and of being a light to the world. And he has some words here then that really challenge and confront us if we are unwilling to be who he calls and commissions us to be. His statement at the end of verse 13 should really give us pause. But at the same time, there's a difference between abandoning the call and being confused in how he faithfully carried out. We're called to be salt and light in what are sometimes confusing, difficult situations. And there are no promises that this will be a pleasant journey. The Beatitudes that we looked at last week ended with, uh, and actually fin- or they finish with and they lead into this salt and light calling with the reality that being a disciple means suffering for the sake of righteousness. It means being reviled and persecuted and having all kinds of evil uh, thrown at you uh, falsely on, on, on the account of Jesus. Yet nonetheless, though, we trust that it's not our witness that the kingdom depends upon, but it depends upon Jesus' promise that he will build his church, that his kingdom will prevail, and that we have every reason to therefore stand in confidence, even when it's confusing or it's difficult and it calls us to give up everything. And that's part of why this call and this commission is one of immense privilege, Because you and I are sent out to be salt and light with the power of Jesus and bearing his light, not our own. Friends, is this how we view the call of Christ? Perhaps viewing witness and distinction as a privilege would blow these two opposite opposite um, ends of the spectrum of asceticism and assimilation out of the water. Because we don't need to run and hide Because Jesus gives us the privilege of testifying to his kingdom. And we don't need to compromise. We don't need to fear even being compromised. Because Jesus is with us in our witness. Let's pray. Jesus, we have so many questions regarding the witness that we are to have of you in this world. And the task that you send us out on. And we confess that we don't always know how to do that either. But with this word, though, that you have given us, please bring clarity for us of how to be salt and light witnesses, how to be public but yet distinct in this world. Give us a practical clarity which bears itself out in our very lives. Because we want to be like this. We want to be salt and light. We want to be disciples. And if we don't, 
show us the goodness of what it means there. But we pray, though, that, that our light would not be ours, just so very dim, but that the light shining brightly from us would be the light of Jesus Christ and that his kingdom would be our witness because we want to see your kingdom, Jesus, flourish on this earth. But we ask that it would be seen among us and for the, the world then to glorify and honor your Father and our Father. But in our times of weakness and confusion, strengthen us. Give us hope. Give us wisdom. And give us strong backs. And trust in the promise that you, Jesus, will never let us go, no matter what is happening around us. We thank you. Amen. We come to this time of the Lord's Supper then. And just briefly, I do want to say it's going to be a little, it's going to look a little bit differently.